whether it's the Me Too movement or whether it's um, that doctor getting pulled off the plane on United Airlines, like there, you, you really are at a stage where we've inverted these power structures in such a way that not only has the institutional shift happened, but now we have to be careful of going too far the other way. You know, it's it's the physics of it, right? Any action causes a natural reaction. And, and I think that the the challenge when you have the ability to stand up and start a movement or bring down an institution is it's the old classic Spider-Man quote, which is with great power comes great responsibility. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julian Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers and experts to get to the bottom of what it actually takes to own your voice and then apply it to driving an industry, a conversation, a movement or a nation. My next guest has been called the controversial leader of a new world order, which would usually be a massive title to live up to, but live up to it, he does. He's the co-founder of citizen journalism site Now Republic, which is the one of the largest news agencies in the world. He's also an award-winning entrepreneur, venture capitalist, best-selling author, and a two-time Emmy-nominated media visionary. He's also been asked to share his insights on the great rewrite with world leaders from the United Nations to the G8 summit. And Alana Brody first came to my attention when I saw a TED talk where he discussed a favorite topic of mine, and it's a topic that I don't see getting as much attention, especially in mainstream media, as I think that it should. He was talking about the great rewrite. He was talking about how the old rules of influence have completely changed and how the traditional power pyramid, that pyramid that at the top would have governments and royalty and underneath would have the military and then the media and then everyday people like you and me at the bottom has completely flipped. How institutions are now being turned on their head, how governments are now having to rethink the entire operating systems of this planet. And because of all those changes, the biggest brands are no longer companies anymore, they are people. And the most trusted voices aren't journalists or media companies anymore, they are thought leaders, people with blogs, people with vlogs. The largest investors aren't banks anymore, they are crowdfunders. And with this democratization of power, with this democratization of access that the digital world has given us, comes unprecedented opportunity. But however, it also comes with unprecedented responsibility. And then the question becomes, are we ready? Leonard is an absolute authority on what this power shift means for us and for anyone seeking to take hold of their own influence and navigate a new world moving forward. And while I could have easily spent an entire day slash week talking to him, I managed to grab him very quickly in between a few phone calls. And so we just jumped into all of the content that we could possibly squeeze into an episode. So for those of you who are used to a longer form interviewed this is a little shorter it's a little bit more focused it's a little bit more direct than usual just think of it as a bulletproof coffee shot of insight beamed live to you from across the world so what did we get into well we dived deep into a number of areas we talked about paying attention to signals how the world is getting rewritten around us and 
this is happening on a minute by minute basis. So you've got to know what to look for. You've got to be able to see the waves coming. We talked about, as I just mentioned, about the fact that power has flipped. The triangle has turned upside down. And for the first time in humanity, we own our own media for no cost and at scale. We talked about crowdfunded media, how investigative journalism isn't profitable anymore because we have access to so much information for free and how new structures are going to start popping up. Not-for-profit, independently owned, crowdfunded, and what that means for who we trust and where we go to for our information, essentially who we allow to influence us and why. We also talk about virtual trust, how we are four times more trusting as our virtual identity, i.e. the person we are online, which we spend about 75% of our time now as that virtual person. Now, as a result of that increased trust, we are taking advice from people we would probably never dream of taking advice from, were we to meet them in real life. And how has that shifting paradigm of trust impacted what we buy, who we buy from, who we listen to, where we go to for information. And finally, as I mentioned, the fact that great power requires, very much requires, great responsibility. You know, as human beings in this new day and age of influence, we have access to the type of power that would have blown the minds of any generation before us. You look at the Arab Spring, governments, institutions can literally be toppled by a few people with iPhones. And because of that, we need to develop more literacy, more maturity on this topic about what we allow to influence us and also the information we put out there on the channels we have access to. Now, there are 3 billion people on the network right now, 3 billion people online, and within the next 24 months, 1 billion more will jump on. It's the, according to Leonard, it's the single largest economic event in human history. So buckle up, listen to my mind-blowing chat with Leonard Brody, and learn as we try and decode what the next steps of human evolution are during this economic event, how we can use it, and hopefully how we can step into it and embrace a new time of change and influence. Welcome to the podcast, Leonard Brody. Thanks for having me. You are, you're welcome. Now, I know you're on a deadline today. So I'm going to jump straight in very quickly with a question that I always start with, which is whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert. And the reason I ask that is for people that have done the, especially the incredible things that you've done with your career, the assumption is often that they, that they would have to be an extrovert to do those things. Well, first of all, I'm for sure an introvert by definition. Uh, I am a homebody introvert, not particularly social. Uh, I would not. I don't think I would be defined by the people who know me as a people person. Uh, that's for sure. But I think there's a whole category now which has been reinvented called the extroverted introvert, which is you can be an extrovert when you need to be, uh, whether it's work or social scenarios. But generally, you you lean towards or prefer the introvert. And, and I would say that's definitely me. I am probably the extroverted introvert, but I lean towards introversion. I have never heard that term before, but I'm, I'm going to adopt it from here on in. Well, let's just jump straight into it. 
I wanted to jump in with your uncle. Seems like a strange place to start, but can you tell me the story of your uncle's business and just how that led you into the the idea of this great rewrite? Yeah, so so my uncle was technically my cousin, but our, our family came from Odessa, which in its day, it was kind of the the French Riviera of, of the Soviet Union and Russia and Ukraine. And so Odessa was a very big Jewish community and our family were a family of musicians. And my grandmother was sort of the prima violinist and her brother was the conductor. And uh, they moved to Canada together and... Uh, Izzy Asper, Israel Asper, who was uh, the son, kind of became uh, a real influence for me as an entrepreneur. He was one of Canada's great entrepreneurs. He was just a force of nature and built uh, one of the most significant media businesses in North America and uh, acted for, really acted as a mentor for me for, for a lot of my life, e- even from afar. And I, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without him. And uh, unfortunately, the company, like many companies, uh, I think lost a bit of its way. Part of it was timing. Part of it was not paying attention to signals. Uh, you know, it's an oversimplification to say it happens for any one reason. But the company <clears throat> had effectively lost its way. And part of that was because the world got rewritten around them. And I became very fascinated and interested in how you stay relevant in a world that is you know, forget about innovation. Innovation is, to me, a dead term that's useless. It, it's really about how you stay relevant in a world where it's consistently being rewritten on a minute-by-minute basis. You then started a, a citizen journalism site called Now Public in 2005. We're not going to go very far into that, but just very quickly, what is citizen journalism? Yeah, I mean, it's it's effectively a bit of an old term. It's a bit of a data term now in the sense that re- really it's just user-generated content pertaining to news. So news falls into multiple categories from, you know, breaking reporting down to investigative journalism. And what we did was we were really focused on breaking news. And, and the argument was that all of us were carrying capturing devices in our pockets <clears throat> to be more likely that we would capture breaking news than a reporter would because there's simply more of us and we'd be there. And so citizen journalism was really about uh, creating an organized structure to take what people were seeing in the world as breaking news and ingesting it into the actual daily news cycle or journalism cycle. And that was that was really, I think, the gist of it. It wasn't replacing journalists or doing investigative journalism. It was really eyes and ears in an orchestrated way. And so you sold that company in 2009. I'm assuming there's a link. There may or may not be a link to the belief that you developed that in 2008, what I've heard you say is that the the world fundamentally shifted. And what's fascinated me about that is you said the words, the digital age ended. Now, bearing in mind that most people had barely caught on to the digital age in 2008, why do you think it's ended and and what happened after that? Yeah, I mean, I think the the date that we look at is really 2009. It it was really when the financial recession and crisis sort of hit its mainstream mark. So 2008 was kind of the beginnings of it. 2009, we were sort of deep in it. And and the argument that I made was if you look at the trending and you look at what was happening at that time, there were a lot of different um, trends and causational factors that were bubbling under that financial crises and recessions do a great job of crystallizing, you know, kind of pulls everything together as a crystallization factor. And I think that's exactly what happened when the recession hit is all these things that were kind of bubbling under that were pretty serious um, behavioral, technological, 
institutional changes that were going on, they all kind of crystallized. And I think that put us in an era where the, the digital age and the innovation era kind of were in the rear view mirror because what was going on now was not about technology alone and it was not about business models or disruption. It was about fundamental human shift, shift in human behavior, shift in human physicality. And it was also about mass institutional shift. You know, you, you, were, you were almost witnessing a common sensification of the institutions we live in. And you're seeing that, and quite frankly, I think the Me Too movement is an interesting example of that. It is a, it, it, it is such common sense, you know, to think about the equality of, of men and women in the workplace, but we were in these broken institutions that allowed those kinds of equalities to fall beneath the cracks. And so now people have this power to stand up and say, those institutions don't work anymore. They don't represent who we are as people. And that is the big fundamental shift. It's enabled by technology and it's assisted by technology, but there's something much more fundamental going on, which is effectively the restating of the operating system of our planet. I'm glad you mentioned the Me Too movement because I think it's, an, it's a really interesting example of something that you talk about, which is that the power triangle has flipped upside down, that the that media is completely democratized now to the point where an individual can start a movement at terrifyingly short periods of time, amass millions of followers and push an agenda in ways that had has never been possible before. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the... You know, we always talk about why the internet mattered, and and everyone has their reasons, right? And and if you ask the average person why the internet mattered, they'd say, oh, it became much more efficient to buy stuff and watch content. <laughs> you know, that was that was kind of the the mainstream answer. But the truth is, the internet mattered because it was the first time in the history of humanity that we owned our own communication at mass scale globally. And when you own your own communication, when you don't have technological disadvantage like cost or regulators or deep technological disadvantage to communicating, you know, because the printing press was expensive. The average person couldn't afford it. The building a cable company was incredibly expensive. Recording equipment, you know, all of that. When you own that communication at scale, the whole world inverts. All these power structures invert. And now you can no longer hide behind the institutions you created. And that I think is, is what's super, super interesting. And whether it's the Me Too movement or whether it's um, that doctor getting pulled off the plane on United Airlines, like there, you, you really are at a stage where we've inverted these power structures in such a way that not only has the institutional shift happened, but now we have to be careful of going too far the other way. You know, it's it's the physics of it, right? Any action causes a natural reaction, and, and I think that the the challenge when you have the ability to stand up and start a movement or bring down an institution is it's the old classic Spider-Man quote, which is "With great power comes great responsibility," and I think many people have not been put in the position of that responsibility, and so if you stand up and you are fighting for a cause, and in that causation, you have a bunch of people that are not ethically trained or um, 
questionable ethically or don't have never been in that kind of position of, of, of power and movement before, it causes challenges, which is you end up in a, in a position where you have this great power, but not necessarily the understanding of the responsibility. And I, and I think that's where you're, you're starting to see the world get a bit more comfortable now, which is, okay, I can, as a, as a general human walking on this planet, I have access to great power. Now, what is the responsibility that goes sidecar with that? That's a really interesting question. And especially when we're looking at the media right now, and there's a lot of a lot of fuss around the media with fake news and, and everything else that's going on. You were quoted as saying, and it's actually a topic I've been thinking about a lot, which is what is the future of media? Is it going to stay private? Does it become publicly owned? How do we guarantee that the information that we have access to has integrity about it, especially seen as the the gravity of decisions we make on the basis of that is getting larger and larger? And you had said, what will happen over time is you will have more independent investigative journalism organizations that spring up that are run by charitable trusts. Now, I hadn't even thought about that. Walk me through that. Well, I think if you think about news, I mean, it's interesting. You're, you're in a sort of golden age of journalism now because of what happened in the U.S. election and the drama around not just fake news. I mean, there's different kinds of fake news. There's there's fake news, which is intended to just be goofy and parody. Then there's fake news that's intended to deceive and intended to sway public opinion. And, and I think you're in a position now where people are realizing that media literacy is really important. It's one of the most important skills that, that a human walking around on this planet can learn is how to be media literate. And the role that the founding parents of Canada and the United States and Australia, of the Western world, thought about when they were building democracy is they were really thinking about investigative journalism, about the ability to uncover truth uh, through press and through media. The problem is investigative journalism is not that profitable. And as we've moved into an era where the web is really driving a lot of the, the news we read, investigative journalism has really become sidelined. Now, ironically, there are quite a few excellent news sources that are that are the best in the world at, at investigative journalism that are doing quite well. Brands like the New York Times and the Washington Post and companies in the technology space like The Information. The, the problem is there needs to be more fluidity in those brands than just one or two best in breed, right? That's not it's not enough. That's not enough to, to provide a full scale spectrum look at the planet. So the model that I always go back to is The Guardian in England. The Guardian is owned by the Scott Trust. And the Scott Trust basically set it up as a not for profit foundation to be the voice and protector of liberal journalism. There are disadvantages of it as well, but I think the not-for-profit model, and the Canadian government is currently looking at this, by the way. They're actually looking at how do you encourage um, investigative journalism through non-for-profit mechanisms. And I think you'll just see a lot more of that. And whether it's examples like the Scott Trust or there's a media fund now that exists purely to fund investigative journalism on a not-for-profit basis, I think it's a good model because you're then in a position where you're not beholden to advertisers, you're not beholden to readership in the traditional sense, you have other mechanisms to fundraise. And, and that, by the way, can cause its own challenges, of course, because then you have to be really media literate around what you're reading. If you're reading The Guardian, you know it's got a liberal agenda and a liberal source. If you're watching Fox News, 
you know, you know its agenda. And that's an ongoing conversation I have with my parents, which is they come from a generation where media was media. You know, media was your source of truth. It was there to provide you with information. It didn't have such a clear leaning that it has now. I think media always had political lines, you know. Uh, certain newspapers were traditionally conservative to right-leaning. Some were sort of left-leaning or in, I mean, you could see it in the names of papers, right? Like the name The Independent in the UK, The Independent was created, you know, however many years ago it was, you know, 100 years ago, The Independent was created to try to cut across that. It was a brand problem even back then. So they were trying to say, let's create nonpartisan news or non-influence and let's create the center line. And so that problem has gone back in media, you know, a very long time. But so I think people have to be aware of it and they have to be aware of the kinds of investigative journalism that are coming out and who are the not-for-profits behind it. But it's certainly one model, not the only model, um, where I think you can see that really get validated. And and I think you can do that, by the way, not as a just a publication, but as a journalist. I think as a journalist, you have really interesting tools in front of you where you can say, look, I, I think there is a story here. I'm going to get backers to fund me to go write this story. That's interesting. So sponsored. Well, it's effectively donors and or crowdfunding. You know, you, you can you can use those mechanisms to say, look, I think there's something stinky going on at City Hall in my city. This is an issue. I want to do a full investigative report. It's going to cost me 20 grand to do it properly. And the people who really want to know that story can donate five dollars, ten dollars, twenty dollars to see that story come to light. And I think those models are, are things that are all going to have to be looked at in some capacity to truly see that become viable. So what we're essentially skirting around here is, is the issue of, of trust, which is one of the key things that, again, I've, I've heard you talk about over and over again. You said you are four times more trusting as your virtual identity. Yeah, I, I mean, I think one of the realities that's coming to light is science fiction was kind of correct all along, which is science fiction always talked about the bifurcation of the human, that we would become a human and something else, you know, whether it's, you know, Star Wars, the, the, the force, or whether it's the Chronicles of Narnia or demons or things that human beings evolve into. And I think that the reality is what we've, what we've noticed is that since we owned our own communication at scale, right, since we became um, owners of our own communication through the internet, all of a sudden science fiction was correct. We kind of bifurcated and a lot of the evidence is showing that we are two people. We are a physical being, the face-to-face -face being, and then we are a virtual being, the person that we are in non-face-to-face -face communication. And didn't you say that 75% of our work time is spent being our virtual self? And the, the crazy one, 62% of our family time is spent as our virtual self. Yeah, close friends and family. It would be friends and family, not just family alone. But yes, the, the, the bottom line is I think the data is showing us that our virtual identities are coming, are becoming our predominant forms of self. And with those come different behavioral markers, like you just act differently and behave differently when you're speaking through a screen or a device. 
And it's critical to understand those behavioral markers, to understand how different you are when you're speaking to someone through a screen and or through a, through a device of any kind, for that matter. And I think that's really the issue. And we have to be we kind of have to be in a position where we're aware of those markers and we're aware of the identity that we're speaking to someone because we just act and behave differently. So trust becomes one of those factors. You know, trust, ironically, you would think being in front of someone physically would be a much more trust-driven uh, experience, meaning like I can, I can look you in the eyes, I can determine, you know, your body language. But it turns out that we're actually a lot more trusting in our virtual identities, a lot more trusting. You know, generally, you, you ask, like, would a parent post photographs of their baby on the lamppost in the neighborhood? And the answer is no, they just wouldn't do that for all kinds of like weird reasons that you'd be like, nah, it just feels wrong. But yet we post hundreds of photographs of our children on Facebook and Flickr, which are globally open, searchable and manipulated lampposts. And, and, and the question is, what is that delta and why do we do it? And the answer about why we do it is because we're more trusting. We're more trusting in that identity. As a, as a parent, I think most parents would, would at least relate to this in some way. The amount of information that you get and trust from Google, from Googling parenting advice, you know, it outweighs a thousandfold the amount of information that you would get and trust from traditional institutions like doctors. I would get some information from a doctor and I would literally go home and Google it and see who else on the internet concurs with that. Now, that's a trained professional. So, yeah, trust online does feel like it's amplified. Yeah, and I think nobody really knows why. I, I have a personal theory, which is I think you're more trusting in your virtual identity because we are younger on the media. So our age on the medium is younger than our physical selves for the most part. So we tend to act younger and, and more adolescent-like on our virtual identities than we do in our physical ones. I think that's true for people over the age of 30. I think people under the age of 30 who grew up natively in, in, into screens, I think it's different. And I think we're just figuring that out. But the truth is we don't know. I mean, I have no, nobody really knows why you're more trusting your virtual identity than you are in your physical one. It seems completely counterintuitive. So you, you had said that there, there are three, or it's a fact, there are three billion on the network, as in the, the digital network now. Within the next 24 months, there'll be one billion more. So it's the single largest economic event in human history. Just as a, a final thing, for anybody listening to this podcast, what's one or two things that if you want to stay ahead of this curve and you want to really take advantage of how trust and how attention has been rewritten, what should you be paying attention to or what should you be focusing on? Yeah, I, I mean, I really uh, pay a lot of time to the future of artificial intelligence and, and, and me, like 40 million other people that, that care about it. I care about it because... As you start to as you start to think about attention and time, we are we have lived up until this moment where the human being is the predominant species on this planet. And I think we are at a position where that is not necessarily the case anymore, where humans may not be the greatest thinkers or most complex thinkers, or you know, that just may not be the case. 
And so I think if you're caring about the planet and, and the rewrite, we've lived through a very human driven rewrite process over the last 25, 30 years. I think that number is going to change just dramatically when you start to look at artificial intelligence and what that's going to mean. And so I think when people, we, we talk a lot about artificial intelligence because it's important, but it's really important because, because we just don't know that humans are going to be the predominant species anymore. That is, a, that is a significant thought to end on, human beings not being the predominant species. Thank you for your time. This was just a very quick, deep dive into the idea of the, of the great rewrite and, and trust in general. For anybody who wants to know more, Leonard's got some fascinating videos out. There's TED Talk. There's, there's no end of articles that you can check out. But thank you for your time. Very much appreciate it. No, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found lots of useful insights and ideas for growing your influence. Thanks, as always, to our producer and the main brain behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. You can find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do by jumping on my website, juliemasters.com, or by following me on Instagram, jules.masters. If you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an interview.